Welcome all to another episode of Finnerin's Wake. Every man, in the opinion of the great English romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, is born either an Aristotelian or a Platonist. For his own part, Coleridge was most decidedly a follower of the latter school, to whose sublime and exclusive academy, along with such luminary figures as Plotinus, Augustine, Clement, and Philo, he was forever proud to claim membership. The alternative school, that led by Aristotle, was by no means lacking in its own list of distinguished and brilliant alumni. Among its most celebrated students, it flaunted such names as Thomas Aquinas, Duns Scotus, Maimonides, and Alexander the Great. In a similar manner, every man is born with a natural preference either for Thucydides, on the one hand, or Herodotus, on the other. Those, like Coleridge, who feel themselves inclined toward Plato, will likely find in Herodotus a congenial spirit with whom to converse and pass their time. Herodotus, born at Halicarnassus on the Asiatic coast in the year 484 BC, had the temperament of a poet, the eloquence of an actor, the curiosity of a child, and the experience of a man well qualified to speak about the world. Exiled from his home at the age of 32, Herodotus bore his punishment lightly, viewing it as a golden opportunity on which to capitalize as he entered his third decade of life. If nothing else, it was a fine justification to escape the political intrigue in which he found himself enmeshed, in the tedium of a life of which he'd grown quite weary. Now, marked by the state as persona non grata, Herodotus was suddenly impelled to leave his home, to roam the earth as he'd always wished, to interact with and observe diverse peoples living far afield, and to think about history and the progress of man. Like a real peripatetic, Herodotus covered every inch of the eastern rim of the Mediterranean Sea, venturing south from Asia Minor to Phoenicia, Judea, Egypt, and then to Libya. It's possible he went as far east as Susa in modern-day Iran, and north to the Pontic shores of the Black Sea. At long last, he returned to Athens, breathed the sweet, learned air of that university city, compiled his voluminous notes, organized his thoughts, and set out to write the greatest history yet conceived. Beginning with the legendary origins of the eastern states through which he traveled, he traced their history and development all the way up to the Persian War, that first truly international conflict of which, against all odds, his adopted city of Athens was the undisputed victor. Cicero, the great Roman consul and orator of the late Republic, deemed Herodotus the father of history. 
Those less impressed by the author's historiographic rigor and more conscious of his tendency to conflate myth, conjecture, and fact preferred to call him the father of lies. Strabo, a contemporary of Cicero, offers an intermediate and, I think, relatively unbiased assessment of history's grand patriarch. He, for one, makes the inarguable claim that there is, quote, much nonsense in Herodotus, unquote. Indeed, there is. See, for instance, his claim that the semen of Ethiopians matches the dark color of their skin, that the Spartans avail themselves of Orestes's magical bones, but not so much that the entire narrative is spoiled. Yes, Herodotus is quick to embrace nearly every superstition with which he makes contact, and to invoke the mighty gods and spirits with whom the heavens above are allegedly filled, but overlooking his tendency to attribute too much to the divine, so much is to be admired in his work. If Herodotus was, as Cicero averred, the father of history, Thucydides would have to be his wayward son. Aside from the genre in which he wrote, Thucydides inherited little from his famous predecessor, a man of unsurpassed genius from whom, so it would appear, he tried very hard to distinguish and distance himself. Yet, that said, though Thucydides is, by about twenty-five years, Herodotus is younger, he's of a much more mature disposition. Herodotus, the imaginative, sublime, poetic Platonist, doubtless Coleridge's choice for an historical muse, is an adolescent when viewed next to his more adult-minded successor, the Aristotelian Thucydides. Of Thucydides's own personal history, we know frustratingly little. In his great work, The History of the Peloponnesian War, he discloses only the information about himself without which, in his rather frugal opinion, the educated reader simply cannot do. He was born at Athens to parents of Thracian roots. His father owned and operated gold mines in that expansive and rugged country, and his mother was the daughter of an aristocratic family. Perhaps, upon his selection to serve as a general in the Athenian army, Thucydides's commanding officers bore his Thracian ancestry in mind. After finishing his education in that same city around which, like the probing gadfly to which his many detractors equated him, the great Socrates still buzzed, Thucydides was commissioned at the age of 36 to lead a naval expedition to Amphipolis, Amphi meaning in Greek on both sides, and polis, of course, meaning city. Amphipolis lay on the fertile coast of Thrace, securely within the realm of Athenian influence. It was, for the acquisition of essential commodities, a vital colonial city by which Athens was reliably provisioned. 
From Thrace she received such important items as grain, silver, and timber, or, in other words, food, coins, and ships, the very things by which an army is supported, in a decades-long war, sustained. Brasidas, the daring Spartan general, recruited an unusual mix of freed helots, mercenaries, and disgraced sons of Lacedaemon, with whom he proceeded to assault and finally to overtake Amphipolis. A battle ensued during which Brasidas and his equally remarkable Athenian counterpart, Cleon, died. It was Thucydides's task to relieve his besieged countrymen, Cleon, a budding demagogue of whom the hoi polloi was enthusiastically supportive, and to regain control of the falling garrison around which Spartan troops were quickly swarming. His failure to do so was the reason for his exile, which he, like Herodotus, passed in fruitful and instructive travel. For the next two decades, Thucydides spent the bulk of his time in the Peloponnese, that area south of Attica of which Sparta was the undisputed capital. There, he lived as one among the enemy, sitting at its hearth, eating at its table, all the while gaining an unexpected appreciation of its austere, noble, indefatigable soul. If his thinking was polluted by even the slightest taint of a patriotic feeling, or blighted by the heightened regard for the place in which he was reared, his time spent in exile had a curative effect. No longer would his eyes be clouded by the thick film of bias and nationalism through which so many of us view the world. He was, rather, able to adjust his sight, focus his view, and tell the history of this war in as clear and impartial a manner as he could. Thucydides's history begins where that of Herodotus leaves off, but the continuity linking the two masters proceeds no further. Stylistically and thematically, the two are completely different. Whereas Herodotus ranges from one country to another, indulging every digression that suggests itself along the way, Thucydides is narrowly, unwaveringly focused often at the expense of a flowing and smooth narrative thucydides adheres too rigidly to chronology causing him to jump from one scene to another only to return back again the months and years impose upon him an unnatural constraint and he labors beneath them as though time itself were an unbending tyrant his work is seldom seasoned by the various foibles and achievements of memorable personalities, whereas Herodotus's pages are overflowing with the unique character sketches of so many vibrant men. Thucydides, with the exception of such figures as Pericles, Nicias, and Alcibiades, all of them larger than life and therefore impossible to ignore, prefers events to humans, action 
to dialogue, the sword to the pen, Ajax to Homer, whereas Herodotus wants to capture it all. Of course, to the reader's delight, Thucydides is occasionally apt to excuse himself from his own rule and to conjure up some of the finest, most eloquent speeches never to have been given voice. For a scholar as punctilious and earnest as he, it's shocking to find Thucydides putting into the mouths of men like Pericles and Alcibiades, with whose distinctive and refined oratorical skills, no doubt, every Athenian was already well acquainted, a script of his own contrivance. On account of the supreme beauty, sustained eloquence, and unmatched gravity of these great speeches, though, we're quick to forgive Thucydides his literary predilection, his tendency to concoct words to which no man really gave voice. Pericles's funeral oration, for example, is one of the noblest eulogies ever written, if not delivered, and the Western canon would be so much the worse had its true author withheld it from his book. What a loss it would be had Thucydides chained himself too tightly to historicity and redacted these words for the silly little reason that they were never actually spoken. Of course, like any man, Thucydides has his faults. While he overflows with precision, numbers, dates, and detail, he lacks wit, creativity, grace, and imagination, features and adornments of which not a single Athenian soul would be found wanting. The severity of his Thracian roots at times rises up and suffocates the reading, and his sole fixation on the war produces a somewhat blinkered view. We hear nothing, for example, of the art, the culture, the drama, the tragedy, the life of Athens and Greece in this most dynamic of ages. We mustn't forget that, at least until the installment of the Thirty Oligarchs at War's End in 404 BC, Athens represented the very pinnacle of humanity, the very summit toward which our lowly species had been climbing. It was an era during which Socrates, Plato, Phidias, Pericles, Gorgias, Themistocles, Aeschylus, Aristophanes, and Sophocles lived. Possibly the greatest concentration of genius that's ever existed. And that these men went wholly unmentioned registers as something on the level of a sin. Equally unmentioned is an entire half of the human population, the female sex. Apparently, women are utterly inconsequential during a time of upheaval and war, a span of nearly thirty long, tempestuous years during which only men are relevant or apparently needed. 
I cannot but deem this a literary crime against humanity, of which only the most unreformed misogynist is capable. But, alas, Thucydides, the aristocratic, conservative Athenian general, had little to say about women beyond his pithy remark at the end of Pericles's funeral oration. Toward the speech's end, he dismissively says, quote, And, if I am to speak of womanly virtues to those of you who will henceforth be widows, let me sum them up in one short admonition. To a woman, not to show more weakness than is natural to her sex, is a great glory and not to be talked about for good or for evil among men." Unquote. As we learn, the women aren't alone in their neglect. Thucydides also excludes from his work any reference to the gods. It would be, in Thucydides' remarkably secular and therefore quite modern opinion, Unmeet for an historian of his professional rank to begin offering supernatural explanations for events occurring right here on earth. Thus, we hear nothing of Athena interceding on behalf of her eponymous city, nor Heracles joining his Doric descendants in their perilous fight. Poseidon offers no guidance to the Attic triremes destined for Sicily, and Mars withholds his power from the Syracusan hoplites. Zeus, father of all the gods, exercises his typical aloofness and restraint, while Hera, his wife, refrains from endorsing one side or the other as her favorite. This is, in every way, a godless, purely human confrontation in which the author won't allow the intrusive caprice of the bickering gods to meddle. To compensate for what this history lacks, Thucydides gives us the assurance of a tale told by an impartial eyewitness. In many instances, he is himself the primary source. He tells us firsthand, for example, of the terrible plague by which he personally was infected. Modern scientists believe it to have been a variant of typhoid, and it utterly decimated the tightly concentrated, unusually urbanized Athenian population. When this isn't the case, he's diligent, to an exhaustive and admirable degree, in finding such a person, interviewing him thoroughly double-checking his proclamations, and incorporating his offerings of knowledge as the verified, certifiable gems of a primary source. This is, even when measured against our own modern standards, the kind of methodological rigor of which there are few examples. Without the assistance of the internet and its limitless trove of digitized books, Thucydides exceeds in accuracy most of our current writers. And, if that weren't enough, he also writes much better. 
Indeed, after Thucydides, only two historians, Tacitus and Edward Gibbon, can be thought of as serious competitors. And so, with that, let's go through a few of Thucydides's most gripping and memorable passages, upon which we might spend some time to dilate as we find ourselves willing and able. We begin with an extraordinary excerpt describing the Athenians as a people from the perspective of their enemies, of which, as we'll come to find out, they had many. One has to remember that by the mid-30s of the 5th century BC, Athens was at its apex. Twice within the span of a half-century, and with almost no assistance from their neighbors, the Athenians defeated the formidable Persian Empire. First at Marathon, located on the mainland of Greece in the year 490 BC, and then again at the island of Salamis in 480 BC. The final death blow was struck on the Persian Empire at the Battle of Plataea, when the Athenians and their Plataean allies defeated what remained of the Persian contingent. As a consequence of these twin invasions, the Athenians and their vulnerable allies recognized the importance of perhaps developing some sort of a defensive alliance, which they did. They created what was known as the Delian League. The humble island for which this burgeoning league was named was Delos, located in the Aegean Sea. But in all reality, this was little more than a convenient title for the Athenian Empire. First, it was intended to receive all of the alliance's wealth. In time, however, the money that was raised by the many constituent states was funneled to Athens proper, in which it was put to marvelous and memorable good use. Athenian culture came to be the object of every other civilization's envy. Its philosophy was subtle and distinguished. Its navy was formidable and undefeated. Its long walls connecting the harbor to Piraeus were impenetrable, and it was productive of some of the world's greatest geniuses. And just as there was a Delian League, which in time became the Athenian Empire, there was an opposing Peloponnesian League. Naturally, the leader of this league was none other than the city-state Sparta, with whom Athens was soon to contend in a nearly three-decade-long war. Foremost among the Peloponnesian League's allies was Corinth. Corinth was a massively wealthy city-state located on the isthmus between 
Athens and Sparta. It was known to be a sort of a juncture, a trading route in which great amounts of wealth flowed and passed and traversed. So the Corinthians, during the middle of the 5th century BC, found themselves in many skirmishes with the Athenians, most notably at the colony of Corsaira, to which the Athenians sent a fleet in hopes of relieving their distant friends. Corinth, of course, had uh, reason to be upset at Athens for such a display, for Corsaira was supposed to be a Corinthian colony, legally obtained and duly governed. And so the Corinthians were particularly aware of just how the Athenians acted in almost every situation. It's for this reason that at the meeting of the Peloponnesian League at Sparta, just prior to the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War, the Corinthian delegation gave a speech. It was a powerful assessment and a biting indictment of the Athenian character type as they understood it. They viewed the Athenians naturally as a hostile enemy of whom the entire Peloponnesian League should take proper note. Thucydides records roughly what was said at this meeting. In addressing the rest of the Peloponnesian League, the Corinthian delegation said the following, You have never fully considered what manner of men these Athenians are with whom you will have to fight, and how utterly unlike yourselves. They are innovators, equally quick in the conception and in the execution of every plan. While you are careful only to keep what you have and uninventive, in action you do not even go as far as you need. They are audacious beyond their strength. They run risks, which policy would condemn, and in the midst of dangers, they are full of hope. Whereas it is your nature to act more feebly than your power allows, informing your policy not even to rely on certainties, and when dangers arise, to think you will never be delivered from them. In other words, as Innovators, in the words of the Corinthians, the Athenians have perhaps less pedigree, but much more panache. They're much more unpredictable when it comes to the lengths to which they'll go to achieve their ends. We also have the Corinthians stating, uh, rebuking perhaps might be a better word, the hesitancy, the reluctance of those by whom the Peloponnesian League is composed. He quite explicitly references the unwillingness and the irresolution displayed by the Peloponnesian League states in the face of danger. One thinks of the Battle of Marathon, during which the Spartans were contemptibly 
hesitant to join in the fight against the Persians and protect their own state. They go on to put into relief the stark differences between the Athenians and the Peloponnesian states. He says that they, the Athenians, are resolute, and you, the Peloponnesians, are dilatory, or you tend to delay and dither. They, the Athenians, are always abroad, and you are always at home. For they think, and this is important, they may gain something by leaving their homes. But you are afraid that any new enterprise may imperil what you already have. When conquerors, they pursue their victory to the utmost. When defeated, they give as little ground as possible. If they suffer a reverse, they at once conceive new hopes to compensate and supply their wants. For them alone, to hope is to have. This, in other words, is a venturesome people unafraid to extend itself, unafraid to colonize, to, to export its superior culture, or perhaps to impress it upon others to whom they think themselves both artistically, aesthetically, culturally, but also militarily superior. This is an important difference. Here you have the waxing... Um, progressive power of Athens reaching out and becoming an imperial force set against the conservative, rooted Peloponnesians. The Corinthians conclude their speech by noting the restlessness of the Athenians. Their fervid zeal, their insatiable desire to gain further victories further afield. This was a tendency of the Athenians for which they ultimately paid the greatest price. This becomes painfully evident to us as we explore and examine the Sicilian expedition at the conclusion of the war, but Back to the Corinthians, they end this speech by saying, quote, None enjoy their good things less because they are always seeking for more. To do their duty is their only holiday, and they deem peaceful repose to be no less a misfortune than incessant fatigue. If a man should say of them, in a word, that it is their nature neither to be at peace themselves, nor to allow peace to other men. He would simply speak the truth. So in other words, restive as the Athenians were, so too did they give no chance of repose to their neighbors, fellow Greeks into whose internal affairs they were constantly meddling. We turn now to what is perhaps the most famous excerpt from Thucydides' great history, that is, Pericles' funeral oration. Precisely who is this Pericles figure about whom we hear so much? 
after whom an entire age, the Periclean Age, is named. It's important to understand him in the context of Athenian life, especially in the context of Athenian politics and its institutions. For you see, Athens was, as we all know, a democracy, but it was a democracy in a different way. It was a direct and not a representational democracy. That is to say that all citizens had an opportunity to participate in the assembly, which was essentially a, a popular assembly. Now, while this might sound appealing to modern ears, one must understand that the popular assembly comprised only citizens, and citizenship, in the classical sense, was rather exclusive. The citizen, as legally defined, was denied none of the political privileges of Athenians in that age. He, and I do mean he, had the ability to exercise his suffrage, the ability to vote, to seek and hold office, and to participate in the popular assembly. Now, as I mentioned, this was a very exclusive privilege in which not everyone participated. For instance, resident aliens and women and no doubt slaves were all excluded from voicing their opinions and having a say in their government. So while we might applaud Athens for its inauguration of democratic policies and uh, what we might call a progressive form of government, it was quite constricted. Overseeing the popular assembly was a group of administrative officers and officials, of which Pericles, as it turns out, was the head. For twenty years or so prior to the start of the Peloponnesian War, he served in this highest role in government, continually the popular assembly, the male citizens of Athens, endowed him with their confidence. They believed in his leadership, and he never failed them. It was during this age that Athens prospered. It was, as we know, it to be the golden age, and golden is synonymous with Periclean. As the de facto chief executive of Athens at the time, it was Pericles' job, and indeed his personal honor, to deliver a eulogy at the end of the first year of the hostilities. He did so probably in the year 430 BC to all of the Athenians gathered behind the walls of the city. Now, this speech he gave, known as the funeral speech, is remarkable in many ways. It's considered, for instance, the locus classicus of democratic thought. It is the very fount to which all defenders of democratic institutions return, and from which they refresh themselves and drink. So, it's an encomium, not just of the Athenians killed valiantly in the battle against the Peloponnesian League, but it's also a celebration of Athens, generally, and it's also a depiction and a differentiation 
of the Athenian way of life and the Spartan way of life. And it's Pericles' intention to prioritize the former. Now, we can be confident that Pericles' funeral oration was, for the most part, faithfully recorded. In all likelihood, Thucydides, the great leader's fellow countryman, was probably in attendance. That said, we shouldn't neglect the fact that Thucydides has a way of putting into his protagonists ideas that are swimming in his own head, and thus we do have to question the veracity of what Pericles is supposedly saying. After describing the custom of the funeral oration and the solemn ceremonies by which it's preceded, Thucydides goes on to quote from Pericles' speech. Now I'll choose a few passages and, and then dilate on them as we see fitting. So for instance, Pericles says early on in his speech that, quote, the friend of the dead who knows the facts may well think that the words of the speaker fall short of his wishes and knowledge. Here we have the idea that little honor can be done to the dead by a speaker, by a eulogist. The memory of the, of the slain, of the fallen, is far greater, is, is far more estimable than anything that mere words could attest to. He then notes that others, thinking it too little, will be met with a, another group still, who will be envious and suspect exaggeration on the part of the eulogist. So, in other words, none will be appeased. Mankind, he says, is, quote, tolerant of the praises of others, so long as each hearer thinks himself capable of doing anything he has heard. But when the speaker rises above this, jealousy and incredulity are at once aroused, end quote. Again, we have Pericles as pointing out a very shrewd observation about human nature. After paying homage to the ancestors of Athens, those from whom he and all his brethren descend, Pericles goes on to talk about the institutions of Athenian politics, from which I quote, Our institutions do not emulate the laws of others. We do not copy our neighbors. Rather, we are an example to them. Our system is called a democracy, for it respects the majority and not the few. But while the law secures equality to all alike in their private disputes, the claim of excellence is also recognized. And when a citizen is in any way distinguished, he is generally preferred to the public service, not in rotation, but for merit. Nor again is there any bar in poverty and obscurity of rank to a man who can do the state some service. It is as free men that we conduct our public life, and in our daily occupations we avoid mutual suspicions. We are not angry with our neighbor if he does what he likes. We do not put on sour looks at him which, though harmless, are not pleasant. This passage is equal parts concision and excellence. It is a brilliant piece of writing. 
For one, he declares the system formally to be a democracy or a demokratos, a power held by the people. And he says it respects the majority and not the few. Now, implicitly in this differentiation, he's mentioning the Spartans and the other Greek city-states. Now, most of the others in Greece, in mainland Greece, that is, were run by oligarchic institutions. And yet, just because the majority is privileged over the few, it doesn't mean that merit is inconsequential and neglected. No, far from it. For this is a, po is a polity that, that still yearns to have the best men leading it, hence a man like Pericles at the helm. And so, when a citizen is in any way distinguished, he's generally preferred. So you see that there is no bar to entry. There is no requirement that one possess a certain amount of acreage or, or that he be stamped by the distinguishing features of a noble and high birth. No. This is a polity desirous of talent. And what a massive pool of talent it had to choose from. Finally, we have what might be the first and perhaps most eloquent articulation of the idea of live and let live. It's an idea to which John Stuart Mill later gave voice with his harm principle. Pericles says that we avoid mutual suspicions. We are not angry with our neighbor if he does what he likes. We do not put on sour looks at him, which, though harmless, are not pleasant. Think about this in our own age. We avoid mutual suspicions. Well, uh, just walking around one day to the next, we seem to be very far from that way of living. In fact, we seem to embrace mutual suspicions, if not to provoke them unnecessarily. And as to not being angry with our neighbors if he does not do what we like, well, I'll let the authoritarian, tyrannical moment through which we're living speak to that. Pericles proceeds to exalt the strengths and the virtues of the Athenian military. He says, quote, In military training, we are superior to our adversaries, end quote. Now, this strikes the reader as somewhat odd, having been led to believe that the Spartans, the mighty, austere Spartans, were the greatest fighters in all the world. Now, one wouldn't be wrong in arriving at this conclusion, because in truth, the Spartans were a superior military force. Now, of course, Pericles had no way of predicting the outcome of what was going to be almost a three-decade-long war, so he can't be blamed. Indeed, he should be forgiven for trying to inspire his countrymen and his soldiers with this speech of his at the outset of the war. Little did he know that at its conclusion, his city-state would be almost completely destroyed and overrun by the Peloponnesian League. But he wouldn't live to see that day. Instead, now, 
he tells us about the superiority of the upbringing of Athenian youth and how they are adjusted to military life. He says, quote, We rely not so much upon preparations or stratagems as upon our own courage and action, and in the matter of education, whereas from early youth they, and he speaks here of the Spartans, are always undergoing laborious exercises which are to make them brave. We, Athenians, live at ease, and yet are equally ready to face perils to which our strength is equal. Our enemies, he says, have never yet felt our strength in full. There could be no greater divergence in pedagogical philosophy than that which existed between and separated the Spartans and the Athenians. We know that the Spartan youth were raised under the harshest of circumstances. For one, the boys lived an essentially communistic life. They were brought together away from their families at a very young age and were brought up with what they called a bosom buddy, a, an older brother, for lack of a better word, to whom they were devoted for much of their young lives. Eventually, they were sent to a trial, a trial by combat or a trial of suffering through, that they had to endure. It was a harsh, cold, cruel, unenviable upbringing, but it produced incredible soldiers. As for the Athenians, they were brought up under the comforts and the delights of the liberal arts. They were taught mathematics and geometry, astronomy, rhetoric, logic, philosophy, etc., and yet, despite the fact that the Athenians were, on the whole, exempt from the physical rigors to which the Spartan boys were subjected, they were more than able to face down any enemy by whom they might be confronted. That Athens was esteemed as the most learned city-state in all of Greece, was a factor of which Pericles was, frankly, proud, and rightly so. Famously, though not vaingloriously, he says, and I quote, The whole city of Athens is an education for Hellas, and that each individual in our society would seem to be capable of the greatest self-reliance, and of the utmost dexterity and grace in the widest range of activities. End quote. Now, this surely isn't just a meaningless boast from the leader of a city state who's trying to rally his citizens through the travails of a war. No, there is much truth in this statement, for, as it was well accepted across the land, Athens was the education of Hellas, and it remained to be such for thousands of years thereafter. And as for the alleged dexterity and grace of the citizens of that great land, there's no denying it. Think, for instance, of the great gadfly of Greece, Socrates. Of course, he is the father of Western philosophy in many ways, the teacher of Plato, but he was also a warrior, 
a fact of which very few people are aware. He fought heroically in multiple battles, and he actually saved the scoundrel, the brilliant scoundrel Alcibiades in one occasion. Think also of the, the man by whom this book is written, Thucydides. He was what you might call a partially successful commander, certainly an elite, and an incredible historian, perhaps the greatest historian ever to have lived. Now the list goes on and on. Uh, one can think of Aeschylus, the great playwright, also a war. So there's no doubt that versatility was married to brilliance in the age of Pericles. Pericles concludes his glorious speech with a somewhat unflattering acknowledgement of the women of Athens. He says, and I quote, If I am also to speak of womanly virtues to those of you who will now be widows, let me sum them up in one short admonition. Your glory will be great if you show no more than the infirmities of your nature, a glory that consists in being least the subjects of report among men, for good or evil. And so, basically, Pericles, what you might call something of a misogynist in his age, was telling the women to control their emotions and to make themselves sparse. As it turns out, it's on this point, their treatment of the female population, that the Athenians fall short of their Spartan enemies. In Sparta, women were greatly esteemed. They were given much more liberty. They were allowed to run around, to be athletic, to show a little ankle, if you will, show a little thigh in many instances. And this was a good thing, a great development for the equality of the sexes. Spartan women were expected to be athletic, they were expected to be vigorous and to, to bear vigorous children. The next excerpt deserving of our attention is Thucydides' description of the infamous plague of Athens. So this was a terrible blight by which the great city was almost completely overcome. Now, it's important to note the context in which this occurred. So, Athens, through the course of its development from the end of the Persian Wars until the beginning of the Peloponnesian Wars, had fortified itself to an extraordinary degree. It built almost impregnable walls behind which its citizens could be brought in times of emergency. Just think, if you were at all vulnerable and were, well, repeatedly attacked by a superior force known as the Persians, then one would think it wise to create as many defensive mechanisms of which you could make use. This is precisely what the Athenians did. And so, as soon as the war with the Peloponnesians began, the uh, Athenians, the urban Athenians, were joined by the rural Athenians, or those living in the countryside of Attica. For you see, it was through Attica that the Peloponnesians would march as they ravaged the countryside and 
destroyed all the crops on which the Athenians relied. And so every pastoralist, every shepherd, every farmer, every rustic Athenian abandoned his home in the countryside in that bucolic setting and sought shelter and refuge behind the protection of the walls. Now, mind you, these were walls through which the Spartans could not penetrate. They were perfectly defensible. But they enclosed a ancient urban city. Just imagine the unsanitary conditions into which they were suddenly thrust. It was an uncleanly place, and there were no modern prophylactic measures by which any sort of disease could be obviated. And so, perhaps from Egypt, perhaps from the Middle East, it's unclear the etiology of the disease, uh, some sort of a pandemic or an endemic broke out in the urban center of Athens. Now, doctors, you know, post facto, are still determining forensically what exactly this disease was. It's been variously linked or identified to and with the bubonic plague or smallpox or typhus, but most are in agreement that it was perhaps typhoid. Other candidates suggest themselves, but none is definitive. In minute and at times morbid and revolting detail, Thucydides describes the nature of this disease. Now, in this case, unlike every other, we have to take Thucydides as a perfectly reliable source, for he not only chronicled the disease, but he suffered by the disease. He was not quite one of its victims, but he certainly was a patient. Now, he recovered from the disease to which so many of his brethren succumbed, and having fought through it, having survived it, he was best able to tell of its effects on the body. Now, what I find most fascinating and perhaps demoralizing about his description of the disease is not the, the process of the infection itself, but rather the psychological impact it had on the Athenians. Now, because of this terribly fatal affliction, the masses were thrown into a state of lawlessness and impiety. He tells us, quote, Men who had hitherto concealed that they acted on the dictates of pleasure now grew bolder. They saw the rapid vicissitudes of fortune, how the rich died at a moment, and those who had nothing immediately inherited their property, reflected that life and riches were alike ephemeral, and thought it right to enjoy themselves without a pause and to think only of pleasure. Suddenly, they had all abandoned virtue and become hedonistic, nihilistic fools. He goes on to tell us, quote, None was eager to exert himself first for an honorable reputation when he esteemed it uncertain if he would not perish before securing it, unquote. 
this is a difficult passage, the recognition that these people might die at any moment, well, this made them, like I said, nihilistic and hedonistic and lawless. The pursuit of honor, once so exalted and, and desirable, which is difficult and time-consuming, well, it was, it was scorned, for men thought it unworthy of their time. Thucydides goes on, quote, Such was the calamity which now afflicted the Athenians. Within the walls their people were dying, and without their country was being ravaged. This twofold terror to which the Athenians were subjected is hardly conceivable by modern minds. Imagine, for instance, a city grand in its cultural importance. Pick one like New York City, for instance. Imagine it being afflicted by a terrible blight, such as this COVID-19 pandemic. If that weren't bad enough, imagine that just outside the boroughs and Manhattan and the city proper, an enemy battered at its gates. Perhaps, given all these factors, one can't blame the nihilistic and hedonistic Athenians. And so, briefly to review, we've covered the Corinthians' address to the Peloponnesian League, which was convened at Sparta. There they provided a rather hostile but, but frank and clear-sighted estimation of their Athenian enemy. We then covered Pericles' famous and exalted funeral oration, in which he basically eulogized the Athenians killed in battle and drew the differentiating features that were so prominent in Athenian life. We then turned to the plague by which Athens was afflicted and nearly overcome. And finally, nearing the conclusion of our rather condensed overview of Thucydides's great history of the Peloponnesian War, we turn to the Melian Dialogue. Milos was a small, rather inconsequential island located about 100 kilometers east of mainland Greece. Culturally and ethnically Dorian, it was for all intents and purposes, decidedly neutral in the Peloponnesian War. Yes, indeed, it did have cultural ties to the Doric city-states, of which Sparta was the undisputed leader. But it wasn't bound to Sparta, nor the Peloponnesian League writ large, for the course of the war. It was neutral, it engaged in no hostilities, and thus should have been ignored. But Athens's ravenous imperial appetite toward the end of the Peace of Nicias, which spanned the years 421 to about 415 or 416 BC, was suddenly stimulated. Renewed of their hunger, the Athenians sent a delegation to the small 
vulnerable island floating in the Aegean Sea. Now, Thucydides records the dialogue, but as is the case with many of his other conversations, we can't be absolutely certain that these were the words said. Probably, the essence was captured by Thucydides, but the actors and the eloquence is of his own making. The dialogue reads as though it could have been extracted from the works of Plato. So often in that brilliant poet's works, we see a sophist, or someone schooled in the art of rhetoric and persuasion, facing up against a true and veritable philosopher, someone infatuated not with the prospect of profit, but by the opportunity to become wise. Oddly enough, in the Melian dialogue, the Athenians adopt the role of the sophists, while the Melians play the role of the more virtuous philosophers. The Athenians present themselves as though they are the manifestation of Thrasymachus, the chief sophist of whom Plato makes frequent use and to whom he often refers. The Melians, on the other hand, seem as though they are playing the role of Socrates, the much more distinguished, honorable, and dignified of the two interlocutors. A few brief passages of this exchange, of this dialogue, will make this perfectly clear. After having received the Athenians, or the Athenian delegation, uh, at their island, the Melians come to understand exactly what they face. They say, and they accuse the Athenians of being engaged in acts of war, without really having fired, so to speak, the first shot. Indeed, sadly, the Melians recognize the futility of this exchange of words, for they know just what the Athenians want and how they will go about getting it. For example, the Melians say that, quote, We see that you, the Athenians, mean to decide the discussion yourselves, and that at the end of it, as is likely, the justice of our cause prevail, and we therefore refuse to yield. We may expect war, if we are convinced by you, slavery. And so you have here something of a Hobson's choice, a decision to make between two equally disagreeable alternatives. In the eyes of the Melians, they may either choose war and face extermination, for lack of a better word, or slavery, to which they, as a liberal and free people, won't easily resign themselves. The Melians, in hoping to preserve themselves, appeal to the higher mandates of justice. But, unfortunately, this is an argument to which the Athenians are entirely deaf. The Athenians respond quite callously by saying, quote, You must act with 
realism. On the basis of what we both really think, for we both alike know that in human reckoning, the question of justice only enters where there is equal power to enforce it, and that the powerful exact what they can, and the weak grant what they must. In other words, far less eloquently stated, might makes right. This is purely the mind of Thrasymachus. This is sophistry to the greatest extent. This is power by the powerful, without any moorings in morals. The Athenians then attempt to persuade the Melians to submit and become a part of their empire by telling them that it will be a mutually advantageous arrangement. But the Melians are skeptical of this claim. They respond by saying, quote, It may be your advantage to be our masters, but how can it be ours to be your slaves? This is an understandable question. And the Athenians promptly respond, quote, By submission, you would avert the most terrible sufferings, and we should profit from not destroying you. The Melians, in response, quote, But must we be your enemies? Would you not receive us as friends if we are neutral and remain at peace with you? To which the Athenians responded, No, your enmity does not injure us as much as your friendship, for your enmity is in the eyes of our subjects a demonstration of our power, your friendship of our weakness. Here you have the very kernel of the philosophy of Machiavelli, the great Florentine philosopher and politician to whom so many strong men refer. He famously said that it is better for a ruler to be feared than loved. And this is precisely what the Athenian delegation is saying. The Melians, an obstinate and upright people, are to this point unconvinced by the Athenians' arguments. They hold out hope that they might find protection and salvation from such entities as the gods and fortune and the Spartans or the Lacedaemonians with whom they are culturally so closely aligned. But the Athenians see through this. They're more realistic. They realize that the, the Melians unwisely think of saving themselves and not resisting what is a far superior force. The Melians, on the contrary, think that, quote, fortune of war is sometimes impartial and not always on the side of numbers. If we yield, hope is at once gone, but if we act, we can still hope to stand unbowed, end quote. Now, the Athenians should know this type of situation very well. It wasn't even 70 or 80 years ago that they, 
a far inferior number, withstood the uh, indomitable forces of the Persians, both at Marathon and Salamis and Plataea after that. But now, so far as the Melians were concerned, the Athenians were playing the role of the hated Persians. In a final act of defiance, the Melians refused to submit to Athenian yoke. The decision was preordained. The fate of the Melians was sealed. They decided to fight against the Athenians. They lost. They withstood about six months worth of a siege to which they ultimately succumbed. The final result was horrifyingly brutal. All the men, all the million men of military age, were captured and promptly put to death. As for the women and children, as was the custom, they were enslaved and sold. To add insult to injury, the Athenians then sent out about 500 colonists to settle the now available land. The Melians were all but an extinguished race. Now, we could continue talking about Thucydides' great work all day. We could, for instance, go on to tell how the Athenians sent out their fated expedition to Sicily, at which almost their entire fleet was lost. We could talk about the treasonous, traitorous behavior of Alcibiades, who turned coat and worked for the Spartans. We could also mention the involvement of the Persians, which came at the end of the war and at a time when Thucydides' pen fell silent. But I think this is an appropriate point at which to stop. We covered the four most important excerpts from Thucydides' work. The speech by the Corinthians to the Peloponnesian League at Sparta, uh, Pericles' funeral oration, the description of the plague by which Athens was afflicted, and the Melian dialogue. Now I urge you, if you have the time and you have the desire, and this podcast was perhaps a source of stimulation and motivation, please go to the original text. Go to Thucydides yourself and read through these startling and brilliant passages. Until then, I wish you well. And thank you again for joining me at Finneran's Wake.